when we don't have feedback that works, things start feeling really horrible. Feedback is this process, this loop by which the intent that we have is reflected in the world around us. And when that loop is short-circuited, when it's not working, then you don't have any confidence in whether or not you had agency over the things around you. When you don't have feedback loops, everything falls apart. Hey, I'm Bonku, the host of Design Lab. This week on the show, we have Cliff Kwong. Cliff is a user experience designer at Google, and he's the author of one of my favorite design books, User-Friendly, How the Hidden Rules of Design are Changing the Way We Live, Work, and Play. The New York Times called his book a tour de force, and it was an Amazon best book of 2019. Previously, Cliff was the head of UX and product at Fast Company. He was the founder of Fast Company's design site, Co-Design, and the editor at Wired. Under Cliff's leadership, Co-Design became an award-winning source of insight and inspiration for a generation of designers. We appreciate everyone who has reached out to us on social media. Um, you know who you are. It's uh, Nick Jeans, Javier de la Mazza, Sheila Netti, Alyssa Rice, and Rosa Vieira de Almeida, all the way from the Netherlands. How cool is that? We love it when people send us their feedback. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give comments to our show on whatever platform you use to listen. Here's my conversation with Cliff Kwong. Can you explain how the dumb design of the World War II plane led to the creation of the Apple Macintosh computer? You wrote an article about it. I just thought it was fascinating. Yeah, so it's less about when you when you hear something like, okay, so how did a World War II, you know, you know, design disaster leak to the, you know, your iPhone or the Macintosh computer, for example? And that sounds like relatively glib. I think when you hear something like that, you're expecting that Malcolm Gladwell, like everything connects sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But what I'm actually trying to get at with that is a philosophical underpinning that began a new way, a new paradigm for seeing that began, that was inaugurated with what you're mentioning, which is like, why did the B-17 in World War II crash so much? Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about that history. So Alphonse Chapanis was the guy that the Army asked to figure this out. It was the Army because at the time the Air Force didn't exist yet. But they asked him, like, why are these planes crashing so much? And at the time, it was very standard to say, like, it's user error, as if that was enough of an explanation. Mm. And the reason that may have felt like a sufficient explanation in the 1940s was that the idea of user error itself was a kind of progress because the army had essentially installed all these people in what they thought was the perfect job for them as discerned by things like intelligence tests and aptitude tests and all these kinds of things. So they thought, well, if that person is the right person for that job, it must have been their fault because so much care was given into identifying the role that would suit what they're good at. And so therefore it was their fault. They either were inattentive you know, whatever. But it turns out, so Chapanis goes, and one of the things that he does is that he actually sits in the cockpit of those airplanes, and he realizes that they're very confusing to use. So in this particular case, the wing flaps, the landing gear, they feel and behave exactly the same. So if you were, let's say, coming in for a landing after a really long, stressful mission, you know, and it was dark, and you were maybe distracted, your nerves were fried, 
it would have been very easy to confuse one for the other. Meanwhile, they actually, one does the opposite of what you want to do when you're landing. So if you mm. want, if you're going for the landing gear, you don't want to engage with wing flaps. Otherwise you're going to crash your plane. Sure, yeah. And so the reason I say that, that, that sounds like an obvious thing, but what I want to say is like, he didn't take the typical explanation of the time as at face value. He went and had this direct experience of what it was like to actually experience that life in the cockpit. Right. And he realized these people are dumb. They're just human. They just have a lot of stuff going on. Like the context in which they're using these things is much richer and more varied than engineers at that point had actually ever really accounted for. And so the point of that is those people sitting in there crashing their planes weren't dumb. They were just human. And he had a certain respect for that humanity, right? Mm. A respect for saying, you're not dumb, you're not wrong, even though you make errors, you're just human. And so to be a, a responsible and ethical designer of these systems, you actually need to take humans at face value. And so the reason that gets you all the way to the Macintosh is that very early on in the Macintosh, they are picking up exactly what Alphonse Chapanis is describing. They're articulating the philosophy behind what motivated Alphonse Chapanis and others such as Paul Fitz. In namely, you know, in the very first ads for the Macintosh, they, they say like some, you know, smart engineers decided, wouldn't it be great if instead of teaching people about computers, we taught computers about people, mm -hmm. how they you know, daydream, how they doodle in their spare time, how they dream. In, in, in that original ad copy, which is like very evocative, it gets to this idea that we human beings are very rounded and we have this complexity and richness in our lives that is not actually captured in a lot of the machines that we use because those machines don't defer to us in some way. They don't respect mm. that complexity. And so that's you can draw a very direct line between the philosophical motivations of what made the original Mac so revolutionary and the sort of the philosophical, like the new point of view that people like Alphonse Japan has first started being able to articulate in the 1940s and thereabouts. So he had this really deep em empathy for the fighter pilots that, right. that was right. kind of new at that time. Right. And new enough that it actually inspired a very big change in what people thought the solution might have been. So... His solution was actually to quote unquote shape code the, the levers and the knobs inside of a cockpit. That's a, something that persists in airplane design, cockpit design, and then also car design and UI design more generally. So that you could feel just by touch and by sight and all these kinds of, by many different senses, these different knobs and all these kinds of things. But interestingly, he's not saying those human beings need to be retrained. He's mm. saying the thing needs to be redesigned. In other mm. words, he's changing the sort of where the blame lies, right? Mm. He is taking a problem. He's saying, no, this is a problem of design. This is not a problem of training. This is not a problem of the human shortcomings. He's essentially reorienting, you know, he's reorienting where the solution lives. And so that's the really like revolutionary thing. I have so many follow-up questions that, especially in the healthcare space where we tend to blame the doctors or the nurses. So I, I want to get there, but before going down that thread, that your book, User-Friendly, it is literally one of the best books I've read in the past five years. I just can't put oh, it down. Wow. And it just 
it's so well written and you know you and robert fabricant i just love the way that you have defined this whole field i've heard you describe user friendliness as simply the fit between the objects around us and the ways we behave you know in that push and pull the question is, is like which one's the easier one to change would you rather change people or would you actually rather change the environment around them i would rather go for the latter because i think people are pretty hard to change yes 100 percent <laughs> harder to change yeah in your book you describe you called three mile island the biggest design failure in modern american history or well, probably yeah. american history and i want to read a line from that chapter meaningless alarms, information clustered nonsensically, no consistency anywhere. These things translated to no mapping, no navigability, no mental models. When I read that, I was like, are you describing the electronic health record that I engage with every day in the emergency room? Because that's what it feels like to me. And can you talk about why Three Mile Island was the biggest design failure in American history? Well, I think so. In terms of calling it the worst, the reason I think it's the worst is that like, so, you know, just to lay out my cards on the table, people who may have read the book, as as you may have guessed, like, I think that climate change is like one of the things that I I think about the most. And, Mm. you know, you know, when you think about France, for example, France's energy grid is about 80% nuclear. Ours is somewhere south of, I think it's like south of 15%. It's relatively small. But the reason we never developed any of that, partly is that we just had like lots of abundant competition for energy sources. But part of it was because of the political willpower to support the development of alternative energy, in particular nuclear, really got stalled by Three Mile Island. And so while nobody was actually killed directly by Three Mile Island, it actually determined a lot about our current like our current, frankly, unsustainable present in the United States. If you had a world in which we were trying to migrate off nuclear because of like the expense associated with it and onto solar, you might be having a different conversation versus moving off of coal. Mm. So I, I just think that the repercussions, which yeah. were not manifest at that time, ended up reverberating across the decades. Mm. So that's why I call it the worst. Yeah. But here's the thing that I think that anybody um, can potentially sympathize with, which is that in that control room, when the when one little localized issue, which was literally a clog pipe, mm-hmm. right? Literally a clog pipe, it caused this cascade of alarms and alerts and all this kind of stuff. And those things were expressed in particular in a control panel that was a little bit like, let's say you're sitting on your dashboard and let's say like, somebody had just rearranged everything on the dashboard. You don't know where anything is. And you like, suddenly you don't know where the speedometer is and you don't know where the gear shifter is and you don't know which way the steering wheel turns. Like imagine that kind of like almost at random shuffling. Well, that's mm. basically how the control room at Three Mile Island in many intents seemed to have been designed. Outwardly it was quite neat, but in practice you had literally the control for, I think, control for like literally a service elevator next to a control for a very critical valve that would have like, could have been determined about whether a reactor melted down. So you had this literal sense that like all the things that you needed were like somebody grabbed them up, threw them in the air and just reassembled them. And so like, let's think about what that would do to you if you were in that room 
hearing a bunch of alarms, not sure what's going on. The point is like when everything goes wrong and there's like this random light over here going off and this random light over here going off and all these things are happening around you, it's impossible for you to create a mental model, a picture in your head about how this thing is working and where the problem might be localized and what you might do about it. And so that's the sense in which, you know, the design of something is really about painting a picture in somebody's head about how it works, right? Giving some workable mental imagery or mental model about how something works. So you have some sense of what the logic is. You have some sense of what, if I do this, it's going to be affected. If I do this, like that's going to have this repercussion over here. You know, you need to have those things very explicitly mapped out. Just to give you a really simple example, in car design, you know, you probably almost every car now has power seats or at least power seats in some ways. Uh-huh. And often what you do is you feel on the left, it's almost like a little, it's almost like a silhouette of a car seat itself on the oh, left that you adjust. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that is a very simple example of somebody giving you a mapping that makes a lot of sense and tells you exactly, here's what this button's going to correspond to. Here's what it's going to do. Here's what it's going to do. And that issue writ large is what did not happen at Three Mile Island. It is often what does not happen in poorly designed objects. They don't give you a good sense of here's how all this stuff fits together. And here's how, you know, one piece here relates to one piece there. And when you don't have a mental model, you can't reason about the thing that you're using. It just becomes a black box. It just becomes like this weird noise machine that you can't actually uh, control you don't have that kind of like internal picture in your head of the logic of the system. And when you don't understand the logic of the system, it becomes very hard to troubleshoot, to fix errors. You know, this is a, this is an incredibly difficult problem in the context of the medical industry, obviously, right? Because who among you, among your peers, I would ask, like really has a good sense of how the system works and what are the, like the pressure points and what are the failure points and what are the sort of like, and people patch it, they patch it and patch it and patch it, but patching only gets you so much. At some point, you actually have to redesign the thing from scratch. The whole healthcare system, I would argue, sure. is a patchwork of an inherently flawed system. And sure. you know, 85% of the alarms that happen to hospitals are ignored because they don't really oh, require clinical time. action. Yeah. And so we have all these alarms going on. I don't even hear it when I'm at work. You know. It's like these from the telemetry monitors. It doesn't even phase me anymore because they don't mean anything. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, I've noticed that so many times too. In the times that I've been like to the emergency room or to the doctor, it's like something goes off and the, the nurse doesn't even look barely. And they just it's like white noise. And, walk away, yeah. right? and that's a great example. It's like, imagine, you know, you we've all heard the parable about the boy who cried wolf, but what if like literally you're sitting in an auditorium of boys who cried wolf, Right. How are you going to identify who's actually identifying the right issue? Like you can't. Like, right. and moreover, it's not just about individual issues. It's about seeing the whole, like giving some tangible sense of how everything fits together, which I should say is one of the like satisfying ends to that story in Three Mile Island, which is that they did redesign that thing. And if you went into that, you know, it was actually shut down this last year because the economics around nuclear have changed in the United States. But that's mostly owing to the cheapness of, of solar, which is a great thing. But in any event, if you actually went to the redesigned control room, which actually adhered to new federal guidelines about how these sorts of things need to work, 
you have literally a picture of the, the reactor and all its main systems and like the controls that control each part of the reactor are just underneath that part of the picture. It's a very, it's like a, it's like a, it's a very obvious solution in many ways. But I think part of the point of the book is that it's only obvious in retrospect. And it's only obvious if you have the right agglomeration of people in the room making those decisions. If you were an engineer, you're not going to make the same decisions mm -hmm. as somebody who is designer or somebody who has to use that thing every day is going to make. And that to me is a, like a lot of the problem with medical systems design is that you don't have like people like doctors or people representing the doctors like UX designers at the table making those decisions. You have people making decisions for things like expediency, cost, which is frankly often measured in the short term, not the long term. Big yeah. problem in the healthcare system. Yeah. You know, and they're optimizing for things that otherwise like that, that may be not the right things to optimize for. You know, I'll give you an example in the reactor thing in, in Three Mile Island, for example. At some point, you know, typically reactors are paired because like you want to be able to like for one to work when the other one is being serviced or whatnot, or another one has to be shut down for maintenance. So they're almost always pairs of them. And so at Three Mile Island, just to give you an example of the confusion that would reign there, an engineer at some point made the decision that if we're going to make two control rooms, it would be most cost-effective to just mirror image those control rooms for various reasons. Yeah. So they just mirror image them. So can you imagine a world in which like you're in one control room and everything's on the right side of the room, and then you go to the other control room and everything's on the left? That's a great example of like an engineer probably just like made absolute sense just to make a mirror image, but it made no intellectual sense for the people that are using it. Uh, lacked empathy for the night watchman who is looking right. at three o'clock in the morning, he has to make a decision when the, when the alarm goes off. Well, much less like the, the alarm, the, the actual nuclear technician at 3 a.m. when an alarm goes off. Am I in that room or in that, in that, in that room? Because the meeting's going to be different. This this thread reminds me of, of a quote that I found, a soundbite you had on NPR that I found super interesting. You said, it's crazy to me that the New York Times has a full staff of art critics, but no design critics that appear on a regular basis. The idea that so much of our lives is not up to critique and inspection and open to channels where we can demand more is very strange. I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more for listeners. I think the real unpacking is really interesting, right? I, so this is actually gets to a little bit the, my motives for writing that book. And it is the following, which is like, so let's just talk about why the Times has art critics, right? So the Times has art critics because they believe art is an integral and fundamentally human thing, or it's integral to human existence, fundamentally human thing. It reflects our culture and all these kinds of things. But the reason you're able to be an art critic is because you're responding to a history. You're responding to a history of ideas that built up over time. And so over time, it's very like critiquing can be much more engaging when you actually have a history of ideas to engage with. And that sort of baseline of that gives you a way of looking when you combine cultural relevance and the sort of like history, those give you a basis of critique. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think is so lacking in design is that designers, even designers, look at what they do as almost ahistorical, right? Mm -hmm. And they sort of, a lot of designers, when they ask, they're asked, for example, design a new app or design whatever, like their reference points are going to be pretty shallow. They're going to be mm -hmm. looking at what 
do similar apps look like? What do maybe some apps designed by people I like on Dribbble or whatever look like? And that reference point, those reference points are relatively shallow. What they're not asking is like, philosophically, why am I even sitting in this chair? What even brought me into that position to be designing this, to be having the wherewithal of solving this problem? And that broader context is, I think, the one that's lacking that actually prevents a certain engagement with the designed world as we see it. Because if everything around you is just in this like eternally suspended present, you're not going to see the bigger themes that emerge when you actually ask, how do they come to be that we're even contemplating this object? So you need a certain amount of narrative and a certain amount of like grounding in order to make your critique that much like rich enough for people to be able to engage with on a personal level. So I, I think that's really what was lacking. And I, I think that that's what the book in, in, in one respect, you know, so I look at the book as having two goals. One is about contemporary design and actually laying out what the stakes are for contemporary design. And the second goal is really historical, which is to situate the contemporary problems and challenges we face in terms of the things that we have learned from and come from, such as Three Mile Island, such as World War II, right? Such as the nascent emergence of mass produced society, mass-produced mm -hmm. consumerism in the 1920s, for example, that informed so much of even what you see today and in terms of how we actually engage with products. And for me, working as a physician, I think a lot about design. When I read your book, these historical examples, for me, there's so many these aha moments. I'm like, oh, that's why this mm -hmm. is so messed up. And you know, right. I wish that we had these experts who could, you know, look in different spaces like the healthcare space, for example, and kind of perform these design autopsies in, in hospitals and giving us more insight maybe into the pathophysiology of errors in medicine or how to make healthcare safer because we're so focused on like short term maybe design right. or results. And we don't have those experts who can give us a broader context. Yeah. And I, I, I do think that there is the ecosystem incentive or the incentives in the system, I think, are, are not great, too. Because, mm -hmm. like, let's say you're a, you're a young, hotshot designer. You're probably going to go try to work at a design agency or some other place. You're not going to probably be the one that's actually trying to get up there and roll up your sleeves and, like, get into, like, all the super gnarly problems that are involved in EMR, for example. Mm -hmm. yep. Like those are really hard problems that are also super impactful, but they don't have that kind of like external, like brag to your friends of what I'm working on sort of field. It's and so, so, it's so unsexy to work on an EMR. <laughs> right. If, if somebody's going to tell you, I'm going to make you like, like you can work on it, like the next, you know, this could be the new Instagram yeah. versus like, you know, this could be our new hospital, like, you know, admission record system. <laughs> it's it's going to feel different. But yeah. and I do think that in some ways, like the most unsexiest problems actually demand the most talented designers. And I actually think that is a little bit of the disconnect that we see now, which is oh. like the, the talent is not being apportioned in the ways it's not being directed where the hardest problems are. It's basically being directed and I say this as somebody who works in big tech, it's being di directed where, you know, a lot of other incentives exist. Yeah. Oh, I 100% agree. 
You said you wrote feedback is the keystone of the user-friendly world. What is a feedback loop and why is it so important? Yeah, so a feedback loop is pretty simple, right? A feedback loop is the process by which you, an action that you make is confirmed and executed and then also communicated to you, back to you. So, you know, a very simple example is like a toaster, right? So you put the toast in the toaster, you push it down, it makes a sound, it clicks. And then when it's done, it pops back up. That first click is the feedback. That first click that tells you, yes, you've engaged this thing and now it's working, that's the feedback. And that loop of you saying like, okay, it's clicked and it's working, I can walk away now. That is the feedback loop. And so feedback loops exist in all sorts of ways, right? When you press a button, something happens and either it did happen or it didn't happen. And, you know, how well that feedback is designed gets to a lot of how you feel about that product. And so, you know, just to bring it back to Three Mile Island very briefly, like one of the things that went wrong in Three Mile Island is that you had a switch that was trying to tell the operators whether or not a valve on the top of the reactor was in fact closed, but it was not accurately saying, it was only saying whether or not the switch had been flipped, not whether the valve had in fact been closed. In other words, the feedback was just corresponding to the intent. It wasn't actually as re- responding to the actual action. I flipped the switch. I want that thing to be closed. It was saying, I'm verifying that you flipped the switch. Not, I'm not verifying that it was actually closed, in fact closed. This is because of the circuitry, blah, blah, blah. But when we don't have feedback that works, things start feeling really horrible. Yeah. Like, you know, think about, I, I bet you can probably provide examples in your, your own practice, like, when you don't know if something's actually been done, you're like, I sent off an email happens every day to me. Yeah. <laughs> I sent off an email. Nobody sent me an email back. What happened? Or I got this test. I didn't get the results. What happened? Mm-hmm. Or I did this thing. It started beeping 10 minutes later. Did that mean that actually it was that, that it happened correctly? I don't know. And so my point is like feedback is this process is this loop by which the intent that we have is reflected in the world around us. And when that loop is short-circuited, when it's not working, then you don't have any confidence in whether or not you had agency over the things around you. And so that basic translation of intent into agency is what breaks when you don't have a proper feedback loop. And you know, to take it back to like a, a, an even simpler thing for readers, it's like, you know, when your computer freezes up and you're just clicking around and it's not doing anything, you, you just like step away. It's not working anymore. Or, you know, some of you may remember like what it was like to have lag, like when you're like chatting with somebody, it makes it intolerable, right? If you're having lag over a video call, you just can't communicate when you don't have the feedback loop of it, whether somebody in real time understood what you were saying and, you know, you heard the response. It just... When you don't have feedback loops, everything falls apart. Like just the most basic things fall apart. Why do we have so many of these disruptions that are are designers not thinking about these principles of feedback loops when they're designing products or services? Well, I think that there's a couple different potential avenues for, so in other words, it's like, you know, you might be asking plainly, why is so much of the design world so bad? Right. Um, (laughs) I didn't want to put it that way, but yeah. (laughs) But I would say like, look, 
So here's the thing is like a good designer should know a lot of these principles and should have them pretty intuitively, you know, they should be pretty intuitive to them and very deeply ingrained. But I will say very little of the design world is actually designed by trained designers, right? Mm. A lot of it is designed by people just, you know, doing the work of design, but not necessarily explicitly trained to be designed. You have very often you have engineers just like making a lot of design calls, right? And a lot of times there's just not even designers present at all. And so I think it's only in the last, call it 20 years, that the scope of what needs to be designed has really sort of grown. And so, you know, this actually, you know, coincides with the rise of, let's say, digitification more broadly in the economy and the rise of technology as well. And so there's all these things that have been quote unquote designed, but the notion that there was a designer that needed to be seated in those places like is relatively new because the concept of UX design, for example, really only exists like in the last 15 years. And 15 years ago, you had nobody saying they were a UX designer. They might say they designed websites or they might say that they designed database interfaces or they might say they designed software but the idea of user experience design more broadly, in other words, something that was less about the specialty, the exact application, and more about the principles and the sort of like, you know, the broader concern with some of these like more eternal principles, like that's a relatively recent thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that only now are we sort of cottoning to the idea that like somebody like a UX designer needs to be in all these different places that have been digitized and transformed by technology because a lot of that trans- technological transformation happened so quickly that nobody, that some of those jobs didn't even exist yeah. when a lot of these things were created. Yeah. So I would argue that I would bet good money that a lot of the systems that surround you in the hospital were created in an era of which literally you could have looked around and said, like, this is confusing. Who can help make this not confusing? They went around and like, we don't know. Those people didn't exist. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's such a need for tighter feedback loops as healthcare becomes digital. And I think of, you know, I'm old enough, I grew up with paper medical records. And when I was a resident, you would get the chart, you would put an order in there for an antibiotic. I would flag that chart and I would put it in the bin and then I would actually try to find the nurse and go, hey, I put an order in for an antibiotic. And there was that visual feedback and the nurse would go, okay, I got that. Now you go on the EHR electronic medical record, you click a button for an antibiotic and there's no feedback loop of, did the nurse actually recognize that order? And was that order completed? Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of errors because of that. Cause I assume that something is going to get done. It doesn't get done. And sometimes I think it's easier with the regular paper records with the order entry, because at least it forced me to have a feedback loop. Yeah, totally. And, you know, that's a little bit of a point I make in the context of the chapter in my book that's about autonomous vehicles, mm-hmm. which is that like that interaction you had in exchanging that piece of paper with that nurse who would look you in the eye and maybe they even don't even say anything to you. There is all this like behavioral cues. Yeah. There is all this like subtle things that are happening. And I think that frankly, in the rush to the digitification of our lives, people overlooked how much contextual signaling happens very naturally for us as human beings, because frankly, 
we rely on feedback. We just cannot live a single day without it. This, in fact, is like what it means when people talk about like how difficulty like people like with autism have in communicating. It's that they don't have those, those subtle nuances of feedback that provide these cues about listening and understanding that most people, that, you know, neurotypical people sort of take for granted. And the point is, is like a lot of that stuff has to be remapped into the digital world. And only now, in many cases, do people understand exactly how fine-grained a lot of those interactions that need to be remapped. You know, and some t- sometimes they're fine-grained and subtle, but sometimes they're blindingly obvious. Yes, like there should be confirmation that your thing was accepted and received, right? Yeah. Like there should be a digital postmark, all yeah. this kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's not necessarily rocket science, but it's also not necessarily obvious when you're taking the path of least resistance. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for those chapters. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, this is a feedback loop I'm missing in this. Like I need, I need more of these feedback loops in, in medicine. Yeah, for sure. I, well, I'm and like, I would say actually more broadly, you know, for what it's worth, Bond, like I, I was just talking with somebody just mentioning that one of my biggest concerns, I, I was, we were talking about this earlier is climate change more broadly. Yeah. But in the instance of climate change, but also I would say in the instance of healthcare, these are both areas in which we are sorely lacking in actionable feedback loops, right? So in the issue of climate, just imagine if, you know, just a thought experiment I conduct in the book is like, imagine if carbon emissions turn the sky green over time. If you had that visible feedback loop of what was happening around you, we would not be arguing about whether or not climate change is real. But the fact that feedback loop does not, there is no direct feedback loop about the climate and what's happening more broadly to the climate that allows an abstraction that allows us not to act. And so very clear climate needs new feedback loops that need to be put in there by mankind because the timescales are too long for human beings to really understand. And the effects are too massive and diffuse, et cetera, et cetera. So we need feedback loops there, but I would say in healthcare too, and in government, I would say as well, there are feedback loops that just do not exist. So I voted for this person. Did they do what I want? I don't know. No feedback loop. Or in healthcare, I want a hamburger. Okay, I forego, I forwent this hamburger. Did that really have a material effect on my life? So nutrition is like a sense in which like we don't have these direct feedback loops of saying, here's how this micro decision led to this long-term outcome. That is an instance where there is no feedback joining long-term consequence with short-term action. Mm-hmm. And I would say like a lot of problems in the way we manage our health lie in the fact that it's very easy to be willfully ignorant of the outcomes of our decisions because feedback loops do not exist, mm-hmm. right? So it becomes very easy to cheat all the time on your diet because you're not yeah. seeing the implications of all the cheating. It becomes very easy to not take care of your health because you're not getting the feedback loop about the, what the consequences are going to be. So and then 20 yeah. years later, 20 years later, you've got diabetes and like, oh shit, it's too late to do something yeah. until you actually have the feedback loop of measuring your blood sugar. And then by then the feedback loop is almost too late. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm thinking about the pandemic and, you know, did we need a tighter feedback loop for mask wearing that, yeah, that short term effect of mask wearing? People are like, right. why do we need to do this? What's the, what's the long-term benefit? And well, I think the other thing that this coincides with, frankly, that feedback loops are frankly not great at is that a lot of outcomes are not deterministic. Mm-hmm. The mask wearing is a percentage reduction. It's, it's a risk reduction, right? Yeah. And so 
I don't really touch on this in the book at all, but it is an issue, which is that like so many outcomes and so many like feedback, they're probabilistic, they're not deterministic. And so like creating a feedback loop around probabil probabilistic outcomes is actually pretty hard because human beings are really not good at understanding statistics. We're just not like Bayes theorem does not come naturally to anybody in, in the human population. I don't know if you want to go there, but do you have thoughts on like, how could we have designed better feedback loops and these public health interventions during this pandemic? Was that even possible to do? I, you know, I haven't thought about it, Bon, but like, I suspect it would have been, right? I mean, think about some, some feedback loops that exist on factories. You know, there is that kind of like, it's been zero days since we had an accident sort of uh, thing. You know, and so a lot of industries actually have these kinds of like feedback loops that go around safety. Right. Mm. But, the, but, you know, I will say what prevents an example like that from being executed in practice in the case of COVID is that we just didn't have a, a mass testing, like any kind of like sense about what, you know, what was actually happening in the world to actually have a feedback loop like that. You actually need to have an effective sensing mechanism. Mm. So feedback loops begin with some sort of like sensory input or sensory, like some sense of like, you know, like, you know, th this ensuring correspondence with the real world. Right? And so that kind of like that layer of like an actual data layer did not exist for COVID, yeah. you know, in, in many ways by intent. Yeah. You know, we had an administration that was very explicitly saying, don't test people because that will drive numbers up and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I will say without that, it's hard to imagine what the feedback loop would have been. Yeah. Um, as we're wrapping up, I want to shift gears and ask you a question about your unusual resume. You're a UX sure. designer and a journalist. You've worked at Wired, Fast Company, Google. Can you talk a little bit about your journey into these different fields and do these roles complement each other? I think they definitely complement each other. I could probably answer that question by maybe tailing a little bit what my journey was into UX design. So I, as an undergraduate, I studied philosophy and fine art. So I was clearly articulated. Columbia, right? Yeah. So, uh, but in that case, like I was clearly experiencing this disconnect between the art world and sort of the world of ideas. I'm an example of somebody for whom UX design did not exist. Nobody told me that was even a thing that you could do, even though like I clearly had interest that's like, Design sat right in the middle of my two poles of interest. But I went to an East Coast liberal arts school where they don't teach design in the curriculum, really. Uh -huh. You know, they have architecture for some weird reasons having to do with the academy. You know, you know, namely, just think about this. It's like, you know, all these East Coast liberal arts schools, like the oldest institutions in the United States, and even in the world, they very often almost always have architecture programs, but for some reason they have never don't have graphic design programs. Oh, you're which right. Which is like, ask yourself why. Huh. Ask yourself why. There's a weird history about why that is. It has to do with like the preeminence of certain design fields and blah, 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 but whatever. So that didn't exist for me. I, for a very long time, thought that I was going to go to graduate school in art. I wanted to get an MFA in sculpture, blah, blah, blah. And so I went into business like for a while because it was just like the job that I could get with a useless degree like fine art and in philosophy. It was like, the you know, the only people that would hire me, as it turns out, was like a was a consulting company. And so I went in like thinking that I was going to make a lot of money and save money to go to art school. That's how I, that's what I thought. 
And then eventually I thought like, I'm not ready to go back to art school. My practice isn't like, it's not evolving like I wanted to. I was having a lot of frustration with my ability to make the things that I wanted to make. So I was like, you know what? I want to, in my day job, get closer to visual culture and at least not have to like feel like I want to die when I go to work. And so I ended up getting into journalism and it ended up starting working at a design magazine, really started learning about design, et cetera. And that, that continued for like 10 years. So I was like a design writer for almost like 10 years, a little over 10 years, where I started Fast Company's design site. I worked at Wired as their design editor and business editor as well. And all that time, I was just like, I always had this very profound sense that I missed the boat. Like I felt miscast, right? Like I felt like I, I was living in somebody else's body. I was relatively successful as a journalist, but I always felt like, oh, if I had to do it over again, I would have. And then at some point I was just like, well, just try it. Try to try to just like to try to make it happen. And so over the course of five years, I sort of transitioned into more sort of product roles and eventually became the head of product in UX at Fast Company where I worked at. And then, you know, that, that sort of, that was like the break. And then like, you know, this is like I mentioned, like probably almost six years ago now. And then I started making that transition and, you know, I, I was able to make that transition. I feel enormously fortunate to have been able to make it. But the one thing that I want to say is that like the transition that I made in my career, I hope that people are thinking about ways to make that into a more common thing, because as our economy evolves, I suspect that we are going to have to go through Everybody, like a lot more people are going to have to do the kinds of shifts that I did in my own career. Because, you know, frankly, like my career may have been different if, if there was any future in journalism, frankly. But at some point I was like, not only do I want to be doing something else, but eventually I'm going to have to be because there's going to be a future which I can't get a job after I'm 50. So, you know, I very intentionally made some of that, that those choices. But your original question does this inform the way I, I think about design? Does it inform the way I work as a designer? And the answer is absolutely yes. And I will say the thing that journalism taught me about is just the idea that like, you never know when something's going to be useful, but you always have to be curious. Yep. And so you just need to have this kind of like roving, omnivorous curiosity about the world around you. And that stuff may get utilized. It may not be, you never know, but I actually view a diversity of influences is really the key to being good in any creative field. Mm -hmm. And that is the habit of mind that really like became second nature to me. Like I read very widely and very weirdly. I re read almost never about design for what it's worth. Huh. I, I instead read about, I don't know. I mean, you know, I read about all kinds of like weird things and that stuff I think makes me uh, much better equipped to be a designer than knowing every like sort of, you know, design manifesto under the sun. Uh, fascinating. Well, well, thank you for writing one of my favorite design books and I've just learned so much from it and I really appreciate you being on the podcast, Cliff. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Rob, that was such a good conversation with Cliff. I'm such a huge fan. I'm so glad he said yes to come on the show. And I'm so happy too, because it's inauguration day. Yeah. He talked about some really awesome stuff. I learned a lot. 
And I am also very happy that it is a new day in America. I've been waiting for this day for four years, man. I wanted to pop open some champagne this morning, but I had to be on Zooms all day long. Yeah, I, I was able to catch a little bit of it, but I'll have to watch the rerun. Who do we have on for next week, man? So we actually have two guests next week. Oh, we, I love it when we have two guests. That's Where right. We have a, a doubleheader episode of uh, we have Maggie Breslin and Victor Montori. Maggie, she's so cool. She spoke to our medical students a few years ago. She's the director of the Patient Revolution. It's like a action advocacy movement to make care more human-centered. And That's right. And Victor wrote a book, correct? Yeah, I'm reading his book this week. It's called Why We Revolt. It's so good. It talks about the industrial healthcare complex and how it dehumanizes uh, patients and physicians. So he's super inspiring. I haven't met him yet, but I've heard a lot about him. Really can't wait to hear about the patient revolution and all the work they're doing, especially the clinic that they're building. What? They're building a clinic? Yeah, isn't that, isn't that cool? Oh, I can't wait to hear about that. All right. You're not going to want to miss this one. It's going to be so good. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cliff Kwong as much as I did. Go out and buy his book. It's called User-Friendly, How the Hidden Rules of Design are Changing the Way We Live, Work, and Play. You can find Cliff on Twitter and reach out to me. We're always looking for feedback, what you like about the show, what you didn't like about the show, who do you want to see on it. You can DM me on Twitter or on Instagram or send me an email, bon at designlabpod.com. Please uh, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps us out so much. I'm your host, Bon Koo. Rob Puglisi produced this episode. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. 